At one point in time, my claim to fame is I was the only parolee in the whole United States with keys to a maximum security facility. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Excited to have Will Pefferman in the studio today. Thanks for being with me, brother. Thank you. Have you seen Game of Thrones? No, I'm not a Game of Thrones type individual, Trevor. Okay. Well, there's a a uh, character on there called Gregor Clegane, otherwise known as the Mountain. He's a giant human being, and I feel like you're the you're the new age <laughs> Mountain. Uh, but I'm glad you made it on time. Otherwise, I was going to whip your ass. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have been about the quickest, uh, the quickest tussle ever. So, um, well, you've been around the around the block and have really become a a go to person in the in the recovery community. So I, I wanted to make a, a point to to meet you and have you on and and talk about you know, all your experiences. So. First, I'd like you to just take us through your story, how it was, how everything started, and where you are now. Okay. So, first and foremost, you know, I just, you know, I'm honored to be here to do this interview with you. And, uh, you know, I have a sobriety date of 425 of 2013. I just celebrated six years in April. Congrats. And it it really amazes me how God is using me in this recovery world. I, uh, you know, most of my life for, you know, I got introduced to a 12-step fellowship in 1979 at an early age of 14 years old. I was court-ordered. So... And it took me 34, 35 years to finally get straightened out, so to speak. And in them 34, 35 years, it was terrible. You know, now I look back on it and reflect. I really don't know how I survived, to be honest with you, because, you know... I've did a lot of terrible things that um, there's no way possible unless it was the good Lord up above looking out for Will and foreseeing me being able to help so many people. Um, you know, when I was young, you know, I come from a broken family. My mom and dad divorced at an early age. But as far as I can remember, mom and dad, when we was to get when they we all was together as a family, you know, my dad was a county cop, Campbell County, and my mother got the opportunity to be the head matron of the Campbell County Jail, hmm. which at the time it was housed in the seventies, it was housed in Alexandria, up above the courthouse. Now this jail only held like twelve to fifteen inmates max. Really? So, like, on the weekends, 
when mom and dad want to go out for a drink, my dad was a heavy drinker. They would pull a trustee out of the county jail to babysit me. <laughs> you know, so I tell people I was doomed from the beginning because, you know, as far as my incarceration career went, you know, this past January, I just served out a 28 and a half year prison sentence. Jesus. And uh, now all that time wasn't served in, but. How much did you do? I've did about 22 years of my life incarcerated. Fuck. Five different in increments. Yeah. You know, uh, and as a juvenile, you know, I, I was a troubled kid. Uh, I started doing time in 1979, um, you know, from being truant. You know, my mother and father divorced at an early age. You know, my dad was a county cop. And he was a vicious individual. You know, he physically abused me and my mother. Uh, you know, actually went at out there. at We, we lived at a two-bedroom cottage that was connected to the courthouse in the county jail out there in Alexandria. That's where you lived? That's where right I lived. There. Right there. Wow. Right there, because my mom did all the cooking for the inmates. So, you know, one particular day, my dad was on to my mom and he was being real mean this particular day and uh i happened to get in his chest drawer and got his service revolver and i shot at him two times when i was eight years old because of the way he was treating my mother and later in life he returned fire you know i don't know if i'll remember to ever get to that but you know, my dad was out one weekend. He was a heavy drinker, uh, and he got in a barroom brawl with a couple individuals, brothers, he claimed, three of them, and uh, they was getting the best of him, and he made his way to his glove box and got his gun, and he shot one of them. And hit him. Oh, yeah. So needless to say, off-duty police officer out in the club drinking shoots a man. That was the end of his career. How many so, years did he do? I mean, how many years did, successfully uh, was he a cop? I'm thinking maybe four or five years. He was okay. fresh out of the Navy. And um, maybe eight years. Okay. But needless to say, that was the end of his police career. And from there, you know, my dad had already gotten into – dealing cards in the back rooms of the illegal gambling joints down in Newport. And it was at that time where I, re I can remember, uh, you know, me and my mom used to be out looking for him and, and we would catch him with other women and stuff. So, uh, mom, you know, my, me and mom, we ended up at our grand, at my mom's parents, my grandparents' house, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad got a divorce. And and I know that me and mom, we ended up in the Newport Projects in Newport, Kentucky. And my dad, he went on from dealing cards to working in the girly joints up on Mama Street. And eventually he had got a, his own club. Hmm. And uh, so every chance that I got, 
I wanted to be up on Mama Street as a, as a young man, as a young boy, you know, and uh, the lights and bright lights and all the action. And there was some good looking women and money and and yeah, I wanted to be around my dad. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, there was a time where you know when my dad was a police officer, that's what I wanted to be. Sure, you know, my dad become a gangster. That's what I wanted to be. You know, I was attracted to that lifestyle at an early age, and that's what I pursued. And, you know, the fast money, the cocaine and alcohol and women. And, you know, I uh, I was telling you that, um, you know, I've had five major incarcerations, you know, so really, you know, when I it started out when I was a teenager, like 16 years old, I was incorrigible as a juvenile. My mother couldn't control me. Uh, my mother had a nervous breakdown. And uh, so I was like shipped around to different family members, like her brother, which is my uncle, you know, I lived with my uncle out in New Mexico while he was in the Air Force, and and I ended up with her sister, which is my aunt in Alexandria, Kentucky, and um, I'm 16 years old at the time, and I'm in an alternative school down in Newport. It's for kids that couldn't make it in regular public schools. They would send the troubled kids to Newport Alternative. And uh, it was there where I met a couple individuals that I start hanging out with in the streets of Newport. I'm living in Alexandria. So one day, I, uh, I was rooting around at my aunt and uncle's house, and I was up in their attic. And I found an old chest, and I opened up this chest, and it was nothing but money. Cash. Cash. And it was old, old currency, like silver certificate, $100 bills, uh, just tons of money. And I kind of like helped myself to a big, you know, one of them little canvas gym bags full. And I headed to Newport on a bus. And, uh, you know, it was at that point, you know, my friend at the time, I considered him my best friend. Well, his dad was the enforcer of the Iron Horseman's Motorcycle Club. So it was at that point to where, you know, I got introduced to um, pain pills like Delata. And I, I remember vividly. This particular day, uh, you know, I had all this money. Actually, I took this money and I cashed it in. I had a lot of silver dollars, too, excuse me, from the 1800s. But I took this cash to this little store guy in Newport, and he gave me dollar for dollar. Uh, so, because I had a lot of silver dollars, too. And, uh, and the Iron Horseman... His name was Mushroom. He he uh, he introduced me to Delata at a you know I was sixteen years old and uh, I did some Delata 
and I woke up and the money was gone. You know, he put me to sleep more or less. But um how much money you think all told you had? About thirteen thousand. It was in an army field coat, you know, in the liner and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of money. And this was in like eighty two. And uh he never got all the money, but he got majority. And then it wasn't long after that, another individual that contributed, he was an older guy that contributed to us, like he'd go buy our beer and stuff on Overton Street in Newport. Just We was at my, my friend's uncle's house, which lived downstairs of this individual. And he rolled in from the justice of the peace where he's like, we just got married him and his wife. And I'm like, congratulations. You know, I never really knew him that well, except whenever I was down in Newport, we would go to him and he'd go right around the corner and get our 40 ounce Millers and we would drink. And this day now I still had some cash quite a bit on me because is what I did was I said, well, let's take the party upstairs to his apartment. You know, he had a, probably 10 or 15 of his friends. And uh, Quaaludes was big then. And there was a Quaalude girl there that was selling them. And I bought everybody Quaaludes. And I sent him around the corner to Jerry's Jug House. And I bought 10 cases of quartz, like 100. You know, there's 10 quartz in a case. I bought a hundred quarts of beer and I bought a case of Bacardi rum, 10 fifths. And, you know, we're going to party. Everybody's doing Quaaludes. And like I said, they're older people and I don't really know them. They're my friends, brothers, friends. But you're making way into the crew. Oh yeah. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table with, uh, the bride's father, me and him's drinking, drinking Bacardi, chasing it with Miller beer. And this uh, older fella all of a sudden just takes a spill out of his chair and hits the floor. And I scooped him up, and I took him in there, and I laid him in the bed, and I told Tony, the guy just got married, whose apartment where we was at, his father-in-law, I said, man, he just fell out. And it seemed like everybody at that party just left. You know, my field coat sitting over the kitchen table And before I realized, I'm like, everybody's leaving. I want to catch the Quaalude girl, man, because I want to buy some more pills. And I had went, I ran, he lived on a second floor apartment. I ran down the steps and she was already gone. So I'm coming back up the steps because everything I I owns there, I just bought all this liquor. And this individual standing in his doorway with a hammer, a bricklayer's hammer. And I'm like, what the heck? What are you doing, dude? Like, he don't want to let me in. And uh, I'm sitting there talking to him, and I kind of, like, look over to my right, and he cracks me right in my skull with a bricklayer's hammer. And the witness witness testimony was uh, that I said, what'd you do that for? You know, I'm standing there with my head all busted open, and and, uh, at this time, my buddy ran up the steps and uh how old are you at this point 16 okay commenced to um stabbing him your friend yeah my friend 
And, uh, I mean, it was pretty bad. And so at that point, I got charged as an adult. I stayed in jail for a year. Fighting with, with what? First degree assault. Even though you didn't do anything. Right. You were guilty by association. Right. I stayed in jail a year before pending trial. And uh, I ended up with a year in jail and three years probation. My buddy ended up pleading guilty to five years, and he went on down to prison. But it it was at that point, you know, I got tried as an adult. Most of my problems was drinking, getting arrested, and fighting the police. And, uh, you know, actually, it, it got so bad in the early 80s, Trevor, that uh, in 1983, now, I got five years for a, a crime that I didn't do, you know, and it was a burglary, which they had an eyewitness saying I did it. And all it was was it was a get back from a Newport police officer that I assaulted, and he staged this whole thing because, you know, I bit him. I bit his finger off Jesus in a Christ. bar room. Well, they was beating the heck out of me, and he, was, he fish hooked me in my mouth, and I bit his finger off. And uh, he held a, a, a deep-rooted resentment, you know, and uh, so anyway, I mean, Newport back, it, I can remember, it was corrupt as heck, man. But I uh, I ended up rioting. They called it first-degree rioting in the old county jail. I, I never had hostages or nothing. I just started tearing things up, vandal, you know, criminal mischief and uh, – and it was at that point where, you know, they was like, now I'm 16 years old at the time. And they, you know, the newspaper article, they called me King Kong. Now I'm 16. And they're like scared to death of me then. Um, and that proceeded, you know, that, that went along with my reputation for years. You know, the police were scared to death. Newport, Covington, anytime they would respond together, other surrounding cities, you know. There was a time where wherever they seen me out, they had a call in, you know. Like I was, I never seen myself like that, you know. But I was unpredictable. I, uh, so anyway, Martha Lane Collins, the governor at the time, was involved in this ordeal, you know, because we never had no hostages on the third floor of that old county jail, but we was holding off the deputies, you know, making them threats. If you come in here, we're going to do this. And and it was a big ordeal back in 1983, 80, 84 maybe, because what happened was they called in the state police response because the governor was involved too. And uh, the governor supposedly told him, if he don't surrender, kill him. So they were considered the, considering this a hostage situation? More or less. Okay. And uh, anyway, I got shipped to LaGrange that night along with six other guys. Now, none of them had any time been convicted or nothing. They just took us down there to keep us in what they call safekeeping and put us in segregation unit. 
And now I'm 16, getting ready to turn 17 at the time. And, you know, my ego's out of this world, you know. Now here I am thinking I'm some real-life gangster, you know. And, And it was just, you know, my addiction and alcoholism was progressing, uh, and it was at that point that, you know, even when I was in prison all that time, I, uh, was, de- I, I was dependent on marijuana. You know, I smoked a lot of weed in prison every day and it was the money. It was the cash, uh, the cash flow too. You know, I hustled with weed on, on the general population and, uh, cause I had means of getting it and, uh, and just all that stuff, you know, in prison, I, um, you know, I was a gifted athlete. I was pretty promising, man. I could have played baseball or football and, uh, you know, but my athletic career was spent in prison and, uh, you know, I tell people, uh, you know, that I led the league every year in prison and home runs hit touchdowns thrown and dirty urines. Because, <laughs> you know, it, I was a mess up, man. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm probably going, I'm a little scatterbrained. I'm kind of all over. Join the club, brother. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I've been married two times. I'm on my third marriage, third marriage. You know, my first wife was probably the perfect moral morally proper individual woman that any man would ever want but i just ripped and ran through her life man because of my illness you know you're sick yeah and uh at the end after seven years of marriage she filed for divorce and i'm in the falmouth care unit came she come got me for a weekend pass and uh she gets pregnant you know with my son he's 20 now but at that point i done got to hanging out with another lady that worked for my father down on mama street you know this lady worked all over the nation so to speak she was one of them dancing girls prostitute you know and uh she made a lot of money and she kind of like trapped me with her money making ability because she enabled me to do whatever i wanted to do um more or less bought me you know always had nice clothes and jewelry and nice cars and plenty of money to do dope. And, you know, we ended up marrying each other because, like, you know, really, she was she was a cocaine dealer at the time, and, and she kind of latched on to me. Now that I look back on it, she needed protection because she feared of getting robbed. And I know, and it was, and that was the case. But I mean, if you would have seen this woman at the time, because she used just as much as she sold, you would be like, 
Oh, heck no, Will. I mean, she literally, physically, she looked like she was getting ready to die any day of cancer. Or you know how people Just look. Just wither, withered away. Withered away from long-term use of cocaine. Heavy. And, you know, she'd get in trouble, and she'd go to jail for six to eight months, and she'd get her looks back. And, you know, I don't know, just after 13 years, I uh, I was attracted to this woman, too, you know, and we got married. Now, most of that time we was married, them 13 years, I was in prison a lot. But she was there every weekend, or what, if I needed Whatever I needed, man. And she waited. You know, the longest prison sentence I did was 60 months, five years. Uh, and she'd be right there waiting for me, have a nice home out here, you know, because she got out of clubs and we got into uh, the massage businesses. You know, that's when the massage parlors was opening around Covington and Cincinnati area for a while. And, and uh, you know, they called them therapeutic but sure. They <laughs> they really <laughs> was they really wasn't the therapeutic type massage parlors. You know, they really was the kind that ended ended in a happy ending. You know, and uh, I uh, finally after thirteen years, we got tired of each other because what happened was her daughter had four boys. And her daughter was starting to get in trouble and get incarcerated. So that left mom and, and stepdad to take control of these four young boys. So, and they, two of them was already teenagers at the time. Uh, never had no really positive influence in their life, this whole, their whole childhood, you know, uh, lived in the hood and, and, and the step and my stepdaughter messed around with uh, thugs, you know, and uh, so these children wasn't uh, the best. They didn't have the best upbringing, so to speak. And uh, and not only that, it started interfering with my using and stuff, you know, and my money. Were you at any point during this? Did you try to get straight? Now I've been trying to get straight for years, like. You know, whether it was she kicked me out. So I'd, my my best move was to run the detox. Now, it was for all the wrong reasons. You know, a lot of times I'd go to detoxes so I can get back in the big bed, you know, my home. Uh, and it really wasn't because I really wanted to, you know. Now that I look back on it, it was just so I could get back in the big bed and 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 have the things that I'm used to having that's at home, you know, which she's had enough of it. Now, there's been times where, like, she had, like, coming up on 10 years of complete abstinence. And uh, although she still worked in the massage, you know, the business is that we, we have four massage parlors and 17 girls at one time which, you know, our money came on the front end, you know, when the client come in based on a half-hour session or a one-hour session. And then the girls would get their money in the rooms. But, you know, and we had contracts from our attorney. 
saying that we're not responsible what goes on in them rooms. And that was the case a lot of times, you know, because there was prostitution charges and and the only thing that happened was they just made us shut down that establishment. And at that point, we just move on and, and find another suite to rent out. And uh, I... Uh, and it got so point it got to the point to where you know because I knew my wife had a few clients that she saw you know like big money clients and there was a time where I didn't really care because it was my bread and butter but it got to the point where I don't know what happened that I started getting overly jealous you know and I would uh, I would interfere with the business. Like most of the time, it was when I was out of money, you know, and I wanted some money because I wanted to keep going. And I would roll in there and and tear stuff up and make a big scene. Uh, and it got to the point to where you know some of the clients that was coming in there on their lunch breaks was our government officials and I was extorting them Hmm. and stuff like that. And, and, uh, it got pretty crazy, you know? Um, but you know, moving on, I, um, in 2009, we got tired of each other. My brother was in federal prison. My mother passed away. I never really had nowhere to go other than her. And it, And it was at that point to where, you know, everything I said I wouldn't do as far as drugs, I ended up doing, including intravenous heroin. And that's where my addiction took me. And that's where I was at at this point. I was dependent on opiate, on heroin. And, uh, you know, but there was a a drug called Suboxone that was hitting the streets and it you know, I tried it a few times. My friends took me down to the Red River Gorge for five days, and I detoxed with Suboxone. And it, and it was minimal, minimal withdrawal. You know, I was fine. But I never had a solution, man. I wasn't in that spiritual solution. You know, so I'd come back to northern Kentucky, and I wouldn't do what I was supposed to do, you know, I'd get a job and I'd get out and I'd get some money and, you know, I wasn't in a, in a program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, although after 13 years of marriage to this woman, we decided it was time to go our way. And at that point, I never really had nowhere to go, but I was, my buddy had a sober living house, the first one in Covington and he, he had a bed for me. And uh, and then at the time, uh, down at Shamrock Boxing, my friend Terry O'Brien sold the gym to another kid, a friend of mine that I used to train. He fought World Tough Man uh, contest, and uh, this kid bought the gym out from Terry. And he says, Will, he says, the gym's yours. As you do as you see fit. You know, I'm at a sober living house. Um, Committed to the to I'm, sobriety? 
well, I'm doing some boxing, mm-hmm. but I'm going to meetings at the time. I'm on the I'm on the medical illegal medical assistant treatment, you know, uh, and I don't think nobody knows except. I was fooling myself because the house manager told me, he says, Will, I know that you're doing some boxings. And matter of fact, I got a box of drug tests that tests for that specific that's on its way. So you got to clean up or you're going to have to leave. So my buddy that bought the gym said, here, Will, this is yours. You do as you see fit. So I'm like, wow, I'm drawing unemployment at the time. And I'm doing a little inquire deal, paper. Uh, so I had an income. And uh, so I got all these great ideas about this gym, what I'm going to do, you know. You know, I, I didn't really talk much about my professional career, but I was pretty promising heavyweight fighter. I saw pictures on Facebook. I was going to – something I was going to talk about. So yeah, yeah, I had every ample opportunity to succeed, man, but I never had a solution, man. You know, I've been I trained with Mike Tyson, no shit, George Foreman, uh, Tommy the Duke Morrison. I've been around all them guys. You know, I had a contract. I signed a professional contract in 1990, and uh, that's a whole nother thing. You know, could have been's and wanna been's, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, so he gives me the gym for me to do as I see fit. And uh, I had all these great ideas. And, and this one day, this was in November of uh, 09. So it's about 1030 in the morning. I'm in the gym cleaning up. And I decide I'm going to go down to Covington Chili and get me a bite to eat. So I'm out on the Madison Street side and I'm locking the door. And I hear, Will, I'm sick. And I look around and it's this little young girl that I know. Uh, that I had partied with previously. She's a street girl, uh, one of them working girls, so to speak. And it's the first of the month. And I'm like, it's the first of the month. There's all kinds of money. And she's like, it's too early. So about that time, I see this other fella pulling up to open his storefront, which is across the street at the time from the gym. And it's uh, he sold that hip-hop clothing. And, uh, really it was just a front cause he was selling more dope than anything. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get her $20 worth. And, uh, and it was kind of bad. I have bad motives. Okay. Uh, I was going to take her into the gym and maybe have my way with her, Trevor. But I decided, I'm like, on the way back cross street tour with this little one tenth of a gram of dope I got for twenty dollars, I'm just gonna give it to her and tell her I know what it's like. I'll get with you later. And that's what I did. So it was about five weeks that rolled by and uh I'm in the bed sleeping at the sober living on Garrett Street and about one AM in the morning I'm being woke up talking about hold your hands up where we could see him. You know, I got all these little red laser dots all over me, and it's Covington Police. And they says, you're under arrest for first-degree trafficking and PFO-1. What's PFO-1? Persistent felony offender. It's 120 months. Jesus. Flat. 10 years. And I'm like, 
you got to be kidding me, man. You got to be mistaken. You know, I've been here for five weeks and I've been doing good as far as trafficking or anything like even being the middleman. You know, I never was a drug dealer, although I played the middle quite a few times to get my fix. And uh, so I didn't have a clue what they was talking about. I thought they really was mistaken until I got downtown to the jail. And this girl, she did a 54-man sweep. She got 54 people, and I just happened to be one of them. When I gave her that one-tenth of a gram of heroin that morning. Oh, same girl. Yeah. She had an audio video on. See, I wasn't the target. Apparently, Covington police just let her go and said, go get us some people. And I just crossed her path that morning. And what better? Let's get Will. You know, and they got because they knew you anyway. Oh, they knew me anyway. You know, and it was my first drug case ever, man. You know, most of my priors was uh, assaulting a police officer. You know, criminal mischief. I never was a thief, man, uh, or a drug trafficker. Uh, I I trafficked drugs, but it wasn't my primary like. I was the man to go over the river to get the stuff because they were scared of dealing with that population, you know? And uh, I'd be the first one to go, you know? Give me the money, you know, because I'm going to get a good deal and I'm going to... Get a little tax, you know? I'm going to tax you. So anyway, man, they got me for a PFO1 and... uh, I ended up with 15 years when it was all said, Trevor. It was a railroad, man. They just wanted me gone, and I didn't blame them because they were scared of me. Whenever Will wasn't doing halfway right, they didn't want to deal with me, man. Because you never know what you were going to get. And I don't know. They've had ample opportunity to kill me, man. And I don't know. I guess it all plays into what I'm doing today because uh, it's unbelievable, man, how my community responds to me today. And that goes for local, state, and federal authorities, man. I mean, they give me the utmost respect and, and, and one of them pat on the back type things, you know, we're so proud of you, you know, and they refer people to me. And, right. Well, uh, to see you where you were right, and, and how bad you were. And, you know, people have respect for us. Right. When we, when we come through the, the fucking darkness, man. You yeah. You know, it's uh, a lot of people can't, the people that have seen it like cops and understand how hard it is. Oh, yeah. And for you to make such a 180, I mean, that's cool. Yeah. And, and you know, is what happened was, uh, so, you know, getting out of prison in 2012 from that 15, I made parole first time up. I did three years. Parole is a nonviolent crime. I ended up uh, with my first wife and my son because I ended up down in Louisville because my second wife, the bad girl, ended up marrying a guy down there for his money, an old guy, and uh, she opened up a club down there, a strip club, but she got closed down because she was operating without a liquor license before she was getting ready to get it. And uh, I pulled to a halfway house and – me and her hung out a couple times, and it, it just wasn't there. So I relapsed at the halfway house in Louisville. In my mind, I'm like, oh, God, I got to get out of here. 
And I already knew that my son and my first wife wanted me to come and stay with them. So that's what happened. You know, I'm already in relapse, though, from down there in Louisville, and I brought me with me uh, into their house. And um, I hid it for about a month, and this is in 2013 now, the first part. And one day my uh, ex-wife went to work, left me there with my 15-year-old son at the time, and he had, uh, I'm laying in a little twin bed sleeping around noon when he's used to seeing me get up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and I'd go for a little run, me and him both, and all that started quitting. You know, I'd go to the gym at lunch and to a meeting in the evenings. That quit. And uh, apparently, you know, they've been uh, confronting me of of my attitude and the way I'm talking to him now so about a month in he came in his mom went to work that morning so it's around 11 or 12 this day he kicked me in my feet real hard while i'm in that little bed my feet's hanging over and he's i was like, gonna say it's probably funny to see you in a yeah. twin bed <laughs> he's like get up you piece of shit i said boy you don't talk to me like that now my son he's 15 at the time and he's big and he he's advanced mature um i said you don't talk to me like that boy and he's like no mf or get up so at that at that point i jumped up trevor and i hit him with a couple body shots bang bang and he's like dad is that all you got and i'm like oh shit i jumped back into bed like i was playing man he said dad he said you got two choices he says you can call the pro officer right now and tell him you need help or get the F out of our house. And, it, man, that was my turning point because I started crying like a baby. I mean, tears was hitting the carpet, man, hard. And uh, and I let the tears dry up, and I called the pro officer. And I said, sir, I got the wool pulled over your eyes. And he's like, what do you mean, Will? I said, well, I've been doing dope. And he's like, oh, no, man, don't tell me heroin. I said, well, I ain't going to lie to you. And it seemed like eternity. I didn't hear nothing, man, on the other end of that phone. And finally he spoke out and he says, well, I got good news and bad news. He said, the good news is I'm going to get you some help. But the bad news is you got to come in right now and go to jail until I get you a bed because I'm not going to let you kill yourself. You just told me you was doing intravenous heroin. And I said, that ain't no big deal, man. I'll be right there. And I went down to the pro office, which they put me in the county jail. And I ended up 63 days later, I ended up at the Grateful Life Center and uh, determined and desperate. And I did my program there. And I went into the office, at what is known as a peer mentor. Because I wasn't in no hurry to go nowhere. Because I really never had no work, nowhere to go. I wasn't going to go back to their house. Because, you know, at first I thought maybe my my first wife wanted to uh, try to patch things up and, and give me another chance to be there with my son and stuff as, you know, husband, wife, son. But I uh, I went into the office. And I stayed 
for a few more months until I had enough money. I got me an apartment and transitioned out. I'm still on parole. And about eight months out at my apartment, I'm working construction. I, I get the opportunity to go down in the mountains of eastern Kentucky and help replicate a brand new facility called Hickory Hill Recovery Center. And now I knew at this point that this is what I want to do, man. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get my degree, but I got to live this pro down before I can get employment because nobody wants to hire you while you're on parole. So I went down as a, a peer mentor, but it was a lot better pay. It was off of a stipend. It was all like they give us $400 a week. Everything's paid. The, you know, my housing and food's paid. So this 400 a week was bank. And and plus I'm getting this on-the-job training, man. I'm putting together a new Recovery Kentucky program in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. So I stayed from my first graduating client, from the first client to come through the center to the first graduating, which was eight months. And... Before I left, I got in a relationship with a longtime friend that I really admired all my life, but she wouldn't have nothing to do with me because of my lifestyle. She was a good woman. I was a bad boy. But we ended up dating. And I told her, I said, this is what I really want to do, and I think this would be great for a resume please support what I want to do. And, you know, I came home on the weekends and stuff, but I took off to the mountains, man. And I stayed eight months from our first to our first graduating client. And I, I figured it's time for me to go home and get married. You know, I got some money saved up and, you know, I never had a problem ever getting work. I got a lot of friends that own businesses and work is, isn't nothing, but the day before I was scheduled to come home from down there, I get a call from Kenton County. Now, we're on a conference call. and Well, actually, I'm talking to Jason Merrick, which is a friend of mine. He got uh, – uh, he was uh, appointed director of addiction services, and he needed – At the a, detention center yeah, in Kenton County. Yeah, he needed a navigator. And he asked me, he said, look, we're starting a program, and you're my right-hand man. And I'm, and I'm like, man, I'm on parole. And they're like, we can get it done. And the reason it got done is because, first of all, that's what they wanted, and, they're, you know, and it was political. You know, it was political. And so I, I had a great job, man, coming home, you know. Uh, I felt valued. You know, I'm working in a... At one point in time, my claim to fame is I was the only parolee in the whole United States with keys to a maximum security facility. It's unreal. That's pretty honorable, unreal. you know? Unbelievable. Hell yeah. And, uh, and it was at that jail, man. I got to do a lot of cool stuff. You know, we started getting some federal grants. I was managing a federal grant, which allowed me to go to Washington, D.C. every quarter and sit with some people from the White House uh, and just talk about the opioid epidemic, you know. Uh, I, occasionally I'll hang out with uh, Sam Quinones, the guy that wrote the book Dreamland. Every time he comes to town, he gets a hold of me. Uh, 
and uh you know so it was i was there for three and a half years and i even went as far as uh you know i'm there 10 months at this time and i had a report to my pro officer i was on once a month and i left out of the jail to go to the pro office in newport and it dawned on me that i didn't have a t-shirt in my vehicle to change out my kenton county detention center polo because i didn't want to go up in the pro office like you know but I'm the only one there at this time. It's late in the afternoon. Everybody done reported. I'm the only one there in the lobby. And I'm signed my pro officer's board. And I'm sitting there for like 45 minutes. And he don't come and check his board. And I stepped to the window. I said, ma'am, is Mr. McDonald in? And she said, yes, he is. And I just sat down, didn't say a word. And uh, she said, sir, what's your name? I said, my name's William Pefferman. And I heard her get on speaker. And she said, Chad, William Pefferman from the Kenton County Jail's here. And I'm like, I'm here to report. I'm not here on official business, you know. And he said, tell him to sign the board and sit real still. He made me wait. And, another, you know, he finally comes and gets me. And uh, this supervising lady started screaming at me in my ear, spitting all over me. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And, uh. Needless to say, I leave there, and I'm coming across 4th Street Bridge, and my phone rings, and it's the pro office. And he's like, be in my office at 8 a.m. Click. I knew he was going to try to give me some crap over my job, which I had to go through all kinds of channels and get permission to have this job because I'm on active pro. I already have permission. But anyway, man, he ended, he made me quit my job at the jail 10 months into this. Why? For no reason, because he could. And I told him, I said, sir, you made a big mistake. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I got a big God. And he's like, get the F out of here. And I, at that point, I was crushed, man, because I was ready. I'm like, what? You know, I'm ready to go get high and everything over it, you know, but I didn't. How much sobriety did you have at that point? A couple years. So I posted it on Facebook, man, and I had like four attorneys come to my rescue like that. Boom. So this one attorney, he said, here, call this lady in Frankfurt. Her name was Rachel Jones of Constituent Services at the governor's office. And I called her, and she's like, what? I said, yes, ma'am. They made me quit my job for no apparent reason. She says, oh, no, that ain't going to happen. She says, you have your community to email me what you do. And this lady got over 300 emails. Of on your behalf. On my behalf of nothing but good. You know, Miss Holly. At North, I mean, everybody, you know. Uh, so the legislation, this was in 2016. They was in session at the time, so nothing was getting done quickly. So when the legislation, now he, he called me every week, being my office at 8 a.m., and he'd bring me in and drop me. Because he thought that I was going to go backwards, man. So finally, about the seventh or eighth week, being my office at 8 a.m., I go in, and he said, read this and sign it. I said, what is it? He says, you're on once every three months now instead of once every month. And I'm like, praise the Lord. And then he said, whoa. He said, read this and sign it. And uh, he says, you don't have to deal with me no more. He says, you're off parole. And I started jumping for joy at that point, you know, Can't man. Imagine. So, uh, you know, I got off parole five years early. And uh, 
And then the next day I get a letter from the Justice Secretary, John Tilley, talking about you can go back to work tomorrow. And, uh, you know, so I went back to work, you know, at the jail. And uh, that's if, it, you know, I wasn't really for sure if they still wanted me. But, you know, I, they did. And I went back, and I was there for three and a half years up until this past October. And, uh, you know, got a better opportunity at the Life Learning Center. I introduced the Life Learning Center to the Kenton County Jail as part of my job as reentry coordinator at the time. And uh, I went to the Life Learning Center because it was a safe haven. And I ended up doing their 12-week program, man, and refocusing. I, I got my unemployment they tried to squeeze me out of, but the unemployment office wasn't going for it because they knew I didn't quit that job. Uh, so I got unemployment, and I'm doing the Life Center. And But right away, man, they started, you know, they hired me as a contractor, and I, I started implementing 12-step meetings for them there, and... And now it's turning into something big, man, like a reentry program. Yeah. And uh I uh I'm a support coordinator down there. Yeah, we yeah. Met, we met there last week. But and you got a you got a Thursday night meeting that's hundred plus? Oh yeah. It's unbelievable, man. So July the twenty fifth, oh, it was up around two hundred back in the winter. It's down to about a hundred and twenty five, hundred and forty in the summer. Sun's out, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but July the twenty fifth, we have a resource. We're having a reentry resource fair at from five to seven p.m. on a Thursday. You ought to come check us out, man. For sure, I got fifty vendors so far that's confirmed from Northern Kentucky Drug Policy Control to uh, tattoo removal. Yeah, you know a lot of employers. Uh, Place is really amazing with everything. Oh, yeah. everything. I'm having Mitch Harrelson agreed to come on, so we'll have him on. Oh, Mitch at, did at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that place. But well, what a uh, what a 180, man! Unbelievable, and you're doing uh, incredible things and starting programs, and you know you're just being yeah. led on a path, whether you're let go for certain reasons or not. But you right. happy where you are? Oh, absolutely. In your life and your job. Absolutely. I, I work, you know, my boss is a 30-year retired state trooper that, and her husband is a retired Covington officer, which, you know, I, I couldn't work for anybody better at this point, you know, and as far as my director, Robert Venable, you know, he was a Navy man, and, and they have a real concern for me and my professional development, man. But for these people that come into the 12-week program at Life Learning Center who are just in the bottom of the barrel, to hear you and your story and, you know, er everywhere you've been, what a hopeful message that is that, you know, even though they're, they could be doing the same things. So that's why we need people like you out there and doing what you're doing because you're saving hundreds of lives you know okay. monthly so uh, i appreciate you being here okay man and uh we'll we'll stay in touch and uh, i'll put uh if you don't mind your social media stuff on the website description and the episode description if you're cool with that yeah so people can reach out and heck yeah yeah 
Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.